You're listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clarke. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clarke. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details, you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions, which are available from many online booksellers, including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the New Revised Standard Version. Chapter 8. Bondage and Liberation An initial thought to ponder. Please watch the video by Yulia Ma of Max Richter's piece of music, Mercy. It's available on YouTube and elsewhere. What does mercy look like in today's world? What does it sound like? What's the touch of mercy? What does it smell? During World War II, Maximilian Kolbe demonstrated the essence of mercy in the context of bondage. Kolbe was a Catholic Franciscan priest in Warsaw when, in 1939, German military forces overran Poland. Kolbe knew that the occupation was likely to lead to his personal suffering, and he even noted to his Franciscan colleagues that Christ himself had said, quote, No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. Colby set up an emergency hospital, but within a month he was arrested and transported to Germany. He joked that they were lucky, since the trip to Germany did not cost them a penny. Even while in German prison camps, Colby showed genuine goodwill to all. Although the food rations were meagre, he would give his to prisoners suffering more than he. He was a man of peace, not out of fear, but courage. He had a knack for engaging with their captors in a way that softened their hearts. In the midst of mistreatment, he would say, all this will pass, good must win. Within a few months, the Franciscans were released and returned to Warsaw, where they cared for and fed refugees, provided Christmas presents to children, and arranged a New Year's celebration for local Jewish families. They provided free coffins to whoever needed them, and even arranged shelter for 1,500 Germans. When a German soldier fell ill, Colby would visit. In 1940, Colby was offered German citizenship, which would have saved him, but he declined. In 1941, Colby was arrested by the Gestapo, along with several other priests. After a couple of months in Pauiak prison, he was transferred to Auschwitz. Priests were a particular target of German abuse and murder in the work camps. They were given heavier loads to carry, and beaten with sticks if they stopped to rest. On one occasion, the guards gave Colby 50 lashes. Praying was forbidden in Auschwitz, though that did not stop Colby. At the risk of death, if discovered, he heard other prisoners' confessions and led secret church services. One Auschwitz prisoner wrote that, quote, The struggle to conserve one's life had assumed a form so brutal that it was very rare for a prisoner to aid another. End of quote. Nevertheless, Colby continued to calmly care for everyone around him, making sure no one was hurt trying to help him. Quote, 
He intended to use every suffering that came his way, not only to show his love for God, but his willingness to suffer for his faith and to help his fellow prisoners. End quote. He urged the other prisoners of faith to pardon their oppressors and return good for evil. He would give away his food and his shoes to other prisoners. He would provide spiritual comfort to the German prison doctors. Many people did not last more than three weeks in Auschwitz. Colby lasted from May to the end of July, when an unfortunate turn of events led to his death. After a prisoner had escaped, the whole camp went without dinner in reprisal. The 600 prisoners who shared the accommodation block of the escaped man, including Maximilian Colby, stood at attention on the parade ground all the next day. At the end of the day, the deputy camp commander, Karl Fritsch, announced that since the fugitive had not been found, ten men would be chosen to die by starvation. One of the chosen men, Francis Gajownacek, started to sob, My wife and my children! Quote, Suddenly there was a movement in the still ranks. A prisoner several rows back has broken out and is pushing his way toward the front. The SS guards, watching this block, raise their automatic rifles, while the dogs at their heels tense for the order to spring. Fritsch and Palich, too, reach toward their holsters. The prisoner steps past the first row. It is Colby. His step is firm, his face peaceful. Angrily, the block capo shouts at him to stop or be shot. Colby answers calmly, I want to talk to the commander, and keeps on walking, while the capo, oddly enough, neither shoots nor clubs him. Then, still at a respectful distance, Colby stops, his cap in his hands. Standing at attention like an officer of some sort himself, he looks Fritsch straight in the eye. Herr Commandant, I wish to make a request, please, he says politely in flawless German. Survivors will later say it's a miracle that no one shoots him. Instead, Fritsch asks, what do you want? I want to die in place of this prisoner. And Colby points toward the sobbing Gajownacek. He presents this audacious request without a stammer. Fritsch looks stupefied, irritated. Everyone notes how the German lord of life and death, suddenly nervous, actually steps back a pace. The prisoner explains coolly, as if they were discussing some everyday matter, that the man over there has a family. I have no wife or children. Besides, I'm old and no good for anything. He is in better condition. Adroitly, he plays on the Nazi line that only the fit should live. Who are you? Fitch croaks. A Catholic priest? Fritsch is silent. A stunned block, audience to this drama, expect him in usual Auschwitz fashion to show no mercy but sneer and take both men. Instead, after a moment... The deputy commander snaps, Request granted. As if he needs to expel some fury, he kicks Gajownacek, snarling, Back to the ranks, you! End of quote. The ten men were stripped naked and locked in a bunker containing nothing more than a bucket for relieving themselves. Colby led them in prayers and singing. After two weeks, with neither food nor water, only four remained alive, including Colby. At that point, the survivors were injected in the arm with carbolic acid, killing them within a few seconds. Francis Gajownacek was not a friend of Colby's, just another human being. But Colby had compassion toward him and his family, 
and acted on that compassion with mercy through the extreme act of sacrificing his own life. Kajanacek survived Auschwitz, and after the war travelled widely to speak of Colby's sacrifice. Colby's act of mercy was not only transformative for Kajanacek, but also for the other prisoners and guards who witnessed his sacrifice and the calm grace with which he faced death. I've included the background of that final sacrifice to emphasise a crucial point, that Colby's act of mercy to Francis Kajanacek was not surprising. This is not a once-in-a-lifetime act, but simply the last act in a life of mercy. Mercy was deeply rooted in Colby's character. He was so used to being for others that offering to take Kajanacek's place was as natural as giving away his food, as natural as hiding Jews from the Nazis as natural as praying and caring for his enemies. This repeats the pattern I've already noted about the Amish community caring for the wife of the schoolhouse gunman, and about the Bishop of Muriel in Les Miserables, as he gives the silver candlesticks to Jean Valjean. In all these cases, extreme acts of kindness are offered by people who have trained themselves, through innumerable smaller acts, to see others' needs, to compassionately yearn for others' well-being, and to give in humility with no expectation of any repayment. Subheading. Bondage, Imprisonment and Slavery. The biblical theme or macro story of bondage is rooted in the Exodus, the Israelites' deliverance from slavery in Egypt. This identity-forming episode in Jewish history reverberates throughout the Bible, The second book of the Old Testament, aptly named Exodus, starts with the descendants of Abraham and Jacob prospering in Egypt, to the point where the locals start feeling threatened by them. That led to a period of perhaps 200 years in which the Israelites were increasingly oppressed by the Egyptians until their lives were made, quote, bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labour, end of quote. Ruthless labour exploitation was later coupled with a command from the Egyptian leader to kill all Israelite boys at birth. But then God intervened to free the people of Israel and to re-establish their journey toward becoming an independent nation. God saw their misery and out of concern for their suffering acted to rescue them. The narrative makes two motives of this rescue plan clear. It is a compassionate response to the people's suffering and at the same time an action that honoured the covenant God previously made with Abraham. As discussed in chapter 3, there's no conflict between these two motives, and both intertwine in God's expression of mercy. The first half of the book of Exodus documents the birth of Moses, his personal journey toward God, God's call for Moses to deliver the people from slavery, a series of confrontations between Moses and the Egyptian pharaoh, and the dramatic escape of over a million people out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. Moses' song of praise after their escape acknowledges the enormity of this divine act of mercy. Numerous passages in the Old Testament remind Israel of the Exodus. Remembering the escape from Egypt is the primary element of the annual Passover celebration. The English word Exodus is a direct transliteration of a Greek word meaning a departure, We can see that theme in the New Testament too, when Stephen recounts the Jewish Exodus story before being stoned. When Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus and speak about the Exodus he will achieve in Jerusalem. And when Paul refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb. 
The macro story of Exodus positions human brokenness as a form of bondage. The plight of Israel in Egypt is one example, but people continue to be trapped, enslaved, chained, imprisoned and oppressed. Many cultures still find themselves under the thumb of a foreign power. Over 11 million people are incarcerated in prisons, and 50 million people are trapped in some form of modern slavery. Some cults use fear, isolation, threats of violence, mystical rituals, and mandatory social conformance to brainwash members into unquestioning loyalty. Uncountable millions are trapped in destructive relationships with partners who abuse them and who use physical and psychological constraints to make escape either impossible or unthinkable. Just as significantly, bondage may be the result of addiction or an inability to see ourselves having control over our situation. Those internal chains can enforce a state of powerlessness and victimization just as much as externally imposed bondage. As Marcus Borg notes, most of us are in bondage to cultural messages that define success, attractiveness and gender roles. Those cultural chains constrain our ability to live well and even our ability to imagine the shape of a good life. At one time or another, we have all been in bondage, enslaved or imprisoned, either internally or externally. Some are imprisoned by others, some by themselves. What does mercy look like in the context of bondage, imprisonment and slavery? Subheading. Liberation, Release and Freedom In the biblical narrative, God's response to bondage is to create the means by which we might be freed. God sees our bondage and, impelled by compassion, acts with generous kindness to alleviate our suffering. Furthermore, God calls us to engage in merciful acts so that the followers of Jesus become known as freed and freeing people. We see that most clearly in the Exodus and in the work of Jesus. Both demonstrate the liberating effect of mercy. When compassion is applied to people in bondage, it breaks the chains that bind and gives people an opportunity to be free. In my experience, Bondage, in all its varied forms, is the most challenging context in which to show mercy. We do not always feel compassion for people constrained by bondage, especially for prisoners and addicts. Even when we do feel compassion, what expressions of kindness are likely to bring a positive change to their plight? At the best of times, helping another person is a tricky business. How do we help without making matters worse in the long term? How do we avoid the person falling into an unhealthy pattern of dependence on being rescued? How do we encourage their own abilities and agency? How do we give assistance without violating their free will? These pitfalls are exacerbated in the context of bondage because often the physical needs are coupled with psychological barriers to being helped. Some do not recognize their situation as one of bondage or do not want to be released. Some have been told so often that they are not worth anything that they believe it. Some are so dependent on their abuser or on the source of their addiction that they can no longer imagine a life without them. Consequently, many prisoners released from jail quickly reoffend to get back into jail where they feel they belong. Many people rescued from various forms of modern slavery return to their previous captors or others just like them. Many escape an abusive relationship only to take up a new, equally abusive relationship. 
What is mercy in such contexts? It is certainly not simply to remove the person from the prison, or from their abuser, or from their access to drugs. Though each of these may be an important step, thoughtful mercy must also address the deeper issues of self-worth, shame, dependence, anger, or a host of other internal chains that bind them just as securely as the externally imposed bondage. For freedom to be sustained, those released from bondage must have the will, along with practical and emotional resources, to take hold of a better alternative. This is part of why Jesus asked people, What do you want me to do for you? Or, Do you want to be healed? Mercy is never coercive, and consequently, we cannot use mercy to force someone to be free. Mercy can only provide an opportunity. Like any true gift, once mercy is given, the recipient can do whatever they like with it, including throw it away. We can show people extreme kindness, beyond what they might expect, beyond what they've been shown in their past, beyond what they might consider they deserve, but forcing someone to be free is impossible. An exceptional book about the complexities of helping other people, either individuals or in community development contexts, is When Helping Hurts by Steve Corbett and Brian Finkert. One of their principles is, quote, to not do things for people that they can do for themselves, end quote. That's an important guide for avoiding paternalism and a rescue mentality. This relates closely to Nietzsche's criticism that pity overrides the recipient's own abilities and choices, disabling them rather than enabling them, taking away their dignity rather than empowering them. I was once underground, exploring a tight cave by torchlight in Bungonia National Park, when our group going one way through the cave met another group going the other way. Where we met, a vertical split about two metres wide allowed us on one side to watch their progress on the other. They were traversing a narrow ledge that angled upwards, and the space was only tall enough to crawl along. Years earlier, someone hammered a spike into the top of the crawl, and there was an old rusty chain hanging down that you could hang on to. Although the traverse was reasonably safe, the possibility of falling off the ledge in the dark down the vertical slit was quite scary. In the process of crawling up that ledge, one young adventurer lost his nerve. He could not find sufficient handholds to pull himself up, nor footholds to push himself up, and he started to panic. The group's leader was above him, sitting safely at the top of the crawl. When he saw the younger climber stuck, he crawled down a little, reached down to grasp his hand, and dragged him upwards to safety. I remember wondering at the time whether that was the best option for the leader. He kept the youth safe, and thus dealt with the immediate physical need. The youth would be forever thankful that he had been saved. But was it a missed opportunity for that young man to stretch himself and learn that he was more capable than he thought he was? A better outcome would have been if the youth had found a way up himself, if the leader had spoken reassuringly to calm down the youth's panic, and given just the minimum of suggestions about moving a hand here, a foot there, would the youth have been able to save himself? Would he then have felt the thrill of achievement and a self-confidence that could propel him to even greater achievements? In the context of bondage, the boundaries between what a person can do and what they cannot do, and between what they can choose and when they are unable to choose, become difficult to identify. In some cases, they are unable to ask for help. 
even unable to recognize that they need help. They may have such low self-esteem that they do not believe they are worthy of being helped. They may believe they deserve their ill-treatment. In what has become known as Stockholm Syndrome, some people become emotionally attached to their captors to the point where they will defend the abusers and refuse assistance. They may become so accustomed to their bondage that they literally cannot conceive of a healthier scenario. In such cases, mercy may entail removing people from their oppressive context even without their explicit permission. Even with a pure motive of compassion, that kind of action must be accompanied by extreme caution, lest it turn into another form of dehumanizing abuse. And that is a tricky balance to attain. To be authentically merciful, such actions need to be coupled with a commitment to nourishing the person's informed free choice. Removed from their captors or from access to something they are addicted to, the person can look back at their bondage from a distance and understand it more truly. Beyond rescuing them from the immediate danger, mercy will also contradict the dehumanizing effect of bondage by reaffirming their inherent value. But mercy must then enable the person to make their own decisions about what to do next. Mercy cannot force the intended outcome of freedom, but only provide an opportunity for it. If liberation from bondage is to be a true act of mercy, it must also take care not to abuse or damage other people. For instance, freeing people from bondage does not justify retributive violence against those who held them in bondage. Setting someone free who has been held in some form of modern slavery will no doubt annoy and inconvenience the trafficker. That might be unavoidable, but freeing one at the expense of another's freedom is neither merciful nor just because it does not foster shalom. For that reason, though this is beyond my intention here, Parts of the Exodus narrative need to be carefully interpreted. Sometimes it does take extreme hardship like the ten plagues to confront people with the need to change. But did God really decide to kill the firstborn son of every Egyptian? Did the escape of Israel from slavery really necessitate the drowning of the whole Egyptian army? Does that not reinforce in a very negative way the adage that might makes right? The Gospel paints a more radical picture of freedom than that. In the Kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus, mercy creates an opportunity for all to flourish, rather than for some to flourish at the expense of others. Jesus, the exact imprint of God, loves even those who consider themselves to be God's enemies. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus announced release for the captive. Later, he noted that visiting prisoners is one of the characteristics separating the sheep whom God blesses from the goats whom God rejects. Jesus did not refer only to those imprisoned unjustly, and surely recognized that many prisoners are lawbreakers, thieves, murderers, terrorists, sexual abusers, etc. Why would he want his followers to visit such people? Why would he see his personal mission as promoting their release? Central to Jesus' understanding is that mercy is to be shown to all, not just to those who seem to deserve it. Prisoners are in great need, physically, psychologically and socially. Like us all, they need nourishment, belonging, hope, meaning. Those who have been imprisoned unfairly need justice. Those who are guilty need forgiveness. Those who are unrepentant need a new heart. All need an opportunity to recognise that they too were made in God's image and that they too are loved. Mercy 
gives everyone an opportunity to reclaim their dignity and find a way to flourish. Bondage, imprisonment and slavery all dehumanise people. They all say you are worth less than your captors. That dehumanisation is also caused by the metaphoric chains of addiction and coercion. By removing your freedom, they take away, or at least threaten, the free will that is so central to the divine image in us. Because of that dehumanisation, prisoners, slaves and addicts live in survival mode, with no expectation of mercy. When generous and surprising acts of kindness are shown to them, the results can be transformative. Such acts may initially meet a specific surface-level need, such as the physical release from captivity, medical care, or safety from physical or sexual abuse. But mercy can also assure people that they are valuable, that they are worth being cared for, protected, even honoured. The result can be a rethinking of their identity and a step toward wholeness and shalom. Such was the case with the man Jesus met in the country of the Gerasenes, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. The man was possessed with many demons, and, outcast by his people, howled day and night, and chained among the tombs. Jesus released him from his enslavement by demons, and in doing so, released him from the need to be bound by chains. What's more, the man could now sit before Jesus, quote, clothed and in his right mind, end quote, valued, cared for, and with his dignity restored. Jesus names this an act of mercy, and it fits perfectly with the definition of mercy we've been following, a gift of extreme kindness motivated by compassion. Several decades later, Paul continued to show how God's mercy, expressed through Jesus' life, death and resurrection, creates an opportunity for us to be freed from bondage. In Paul's view, we are all slaves to something though his use of the Greek word doulos could equally mean a servant rather than slave. Where we were once slaves to fear, to sin, and to our passions and pleasures, the work of Jesus enables us to be slaves to righteousness, to God and to Christ. We can be freed from the law of sin and death, and instead become slaves to each other. Those new forms of slavery are motivated not by fear but love, not by coercion but by grace and choice. Paul knew about prison from first-hand experience, and knew that he could live in freedom regardless of such circumstances. While visiting Philippi, Paul was thrown into jail along with his companion Silas. The story of their miraculous release is worth reading in full, but I just want to note the double act of mercy in that story. God responded to the immediate need of Paul and Silas, but that mercy overflowed to the jailer and his family as well. Paul's compassion toward the jailer averted a suicide and brought joy to the whole family. In a sense, the jailer was also in jail, in bondage to fear and constrained by the magistrates. The power of God released both prisoner and jailer. In the biblical macro story of bondage, mercy is what creates the opportunity for liberation, release and freedom, for oppressed and oppressor alike. Subheading. Something to consider. In what ways have you been oppressed? In what ways have you been an oppressor? What does mercy free you from? What are you more able to do because of mercy? 
chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook.